0: Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure that we are prepared for our study of the Word of God. We do that through having a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. The solution, of course, for the believer to post-salvation sins is 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So at the moment we admit or acknowledge in privacy to God the Father our sins, then even if we've forgotten some, even if we don't realize that some were sins, God cleanses us from all of them, restores us to fellowship with him, and we immediately recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so we are prepared to take in the word of God. So we make it our practice before we study God's Word, to begin with a few moments of silent prayer, so you can use First John 1-9 if necessary, then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to gather together as a body of believers today to study your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is in your light that we see light. Now, Father, as we study these important doctrines this morning, we pray that you would challenge us with them, that we could see how they relate to our lives, and that we may indeed learn what it means to live today in light of eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every now and then, you get something rather enlightening and humorous off the Internet. This was was reported in the National Post. The following is reported as an actual question appearing on a University of Washington chemistry exam. Is hell exothermic, that means releasing heat, or endothermic, means absorbing heat? Support your answer with the proof. Most of the students wrote proofs of their beliefs using Boyle's law, which holds that the pressure of a given mass of gas is inversely proportional to its volume at a constant temperature. One student, however, wrote the following. First, we need to know how the mass of hell is changing in time. So we need to know the rate that souls are moving into hell and the rate at which they are leaving. I think it is safe to assume that once a soul is in hell, it will not leave. Therefore, no souls are leaving. As for how many souls are entering hell, let's look at the different religions that exist in the world today. Some religions state that if you are not a member of their religion, you will go to hell. Since there are more than one of these religions, and since people do not belong to more than one religion, we can project that all people and all souls go to hell. With birth and death rates as they are, we can therefore expect the number of souls in hell to increase exponentially. Now, we look at the rate of change of the volume of hell because Boyle's law states that in order for the temperature and pressure in hell to stay the same, the volume of hell must expand as souls are added. This gives two possibilities. If hell is expanding at a slower rate than the rate at which souls enter hell, then the temperature and pressure in hell will increase until all hell breaks loose. (laughs) Two, of course, if hell is expanding at a rate faster than the increase of souls in hell, then the temperature and pressure will drop until hell freezes over. So which is it? Well, if we accept the postulate given to me by Ms. Teresa Banyan during my freshman year that quote, it will be a cold night in hell before I go out with you, and take into account the fact that I have not yet succeeded in having a date with her, then two cannot be true. And thus I'm sure that hell is exothermic. The student got the only A on the exam. This theology was a little weak at points, but the humor was good. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and we will continue our study on the last phrase. Let me see, where are we? Verse. Galatians chapter 5, verse 21, we're... An analyzing the last phrase. Now, in the argument of Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16 down through 26, the main idea is that the Apostle Paul is challenging every believer to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. Because the spiritual life is a supernatural life, it is not empowered by our natural abilities, but by the supernatural abilities that God the Holy Spirit gives us. The Apostle Paul is giving us sort of a checklist so that we can evaluate our lives to see if we are indeed living on the basis of the flesh, the sin nature, or on the basis of the Holy Spirit. And we made some connections that even though we may be trying to live a moral life, a religious life, people who are caught up in uh, all sorts of ritual and religion think that somehow that equates to the filling of the Holy Spirit... And yet the result is always sin. Paul makes that point in Romans chapter seven. No matter how hard he tried to obey the law, he says it always resulted in sin. And so there is a list here, and they include both uh, sins of, you know, sexual sins at the beginning, religious sins of idolatry and sorcery, plus the personal relationship discord that results whenever people are operating on the sin nature because of the destructive nature of arrogance. And then at the end there is this very cryptic statement, a statement that has caused much confusion for people, and that is the statement that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the way this verse is normally translated or normally interpreted is that the phrase inheriting the kingdom of God is deemed to be equivalent to entering into heaven. Yet that raises a very crucial hermeneutical problem. And that is that if it means to enter in the heaven, then this verse would be teaching a salvation by morality or a salvation by works, which as we have seen in our study of Galatians is just the opposite of what the Bible teaches is the only way to salvation. And that is by faith alone in Christ alone, that salvation is by grace through faith. Titus 3.5 says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.8.9 says that it is for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So if this passage, if the phrase inherit the kingdom of God means to enter into heaven, then what this passage is saying is the only way you're going to enter into heaven is if you avoid these sins. Yet, that runs contrary to Scripture. So, we have been asking the question, what does it mean to inherit the kingdom of God? And we have seen that this is a technical phrase, and it is not so much just a matter of understanding the concept of inheritance, but specifically inheriting the kingdom by way of review, we realize that the kingdom here refers to the messianic kingdom that Jesus Christ will establish at his second coming. He came first at the first advent. You had the virgin conception and virgin birth and his approximately 33 years on planet Earth, which culminated in the first stage of the plan of salvation, which is his substitutionary death on the cross. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he paid the penalty for the sin of every single human being in human history. There is no sin that was not paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. Therefore, sin, much to the surprise of many and in contradiction to what is taught by some people, sin is no longer the issue because it was paid for. God does not violate the law of double jeopardy. Once a penalty is paid, it's not paid for again. The sin of every human being was poured out on Christ at the cross. He paid the penalty. So the issue is no longer your sin. The issue is what do you think about Jesus Christ? Because he paid the penalty, it does not mean that the penalty is automatically applied. It is only applied when you express faith in Christ, belief in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, the only way to heaven, to eternal life. So at the first advent, Jesus Christ accomplished the first part of the plan of salvation, the complete pay- payment for sin. Ultimately, sa- salvation will be brought to completion at the second coming when he establishes the millennial kingdom and all of the other promises that have, and prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled are fulfilled. In between, you have the church age. The church age is of undeterminate time. No one knows how long the church age will last. No one knows when it will end. No prophecies have to be fulfilled in the church age. In fact, there are no prophecies related to the end of the church age. We know that Jesus will come back, and no one knows the time or the hour. It is imminent. When Jesus returns, it will be in the clouds. This is called the rapture of the church. At that time, all believers, alive and dead, will be caught up, in the heavens to be with the Lord instantaneously, when we receive resurrection bodies. Just after, shortly thereafter, the Antichrist will establish his covenant with Israel and establish a peace treaty, and that begins the final countdown, the seven-year tribulation on the earth, which is the time of the last uh, great outpouring of divine judgment on all unbelievers Hundreds of thousands, by the way, will trust Christ during this period. And it will end with the second coming of Christ. Uh, God will save mankind from total annihilation at the Battle of Armageddon. And then all unbelievers are taken off the earth in judgment. And those believers who survive the tribulation will go into the millennial kingdom with their physical bodies. This is important to understand this. With their physical bodies intact, they will marry, they will procreate, they will raise children. Those children will still have to make the most important decision anybody can make, and that is, what do you think about Jesus Christ? Many will reject Christ as Savior, even though Jesus Christ is literally on the earth. He is physically ruling the earth from the throne of David in Jerusalem. And it will be a time of almost perfect environment on planet earth. The the, the lamb will lie down with the lion. A child will be able to put his hand in a cobra's den. There will not be disease. Many of these factors that are a result of the curse from Adam's fall will be removed from the planet. And yet, there will still be many hundreds of thousands who reject the grace of God. This illustrates the principle that it's not environment that's the issue. The issue is volition. It is always human volition, and even in perfect environment, there will be many who reject the grace of God. This kingdom that Jesus Christ establishes is called the Messianic Kingdom, and it's also called the Millennial Kingdom, from the Latin word mille, meaning one thousand. It is the one thousand year rule and reign of Jesus Christ, and because we believe that it is not inaugurated until Jesus Christ returns to the earth... At the rapture, He only comes in the clouds. At the second coming, He comes to the earth. Now, what we have studied is that during this period of time, while the seven-year tribulation is taking place on the earth, there is a, the judgment seat of Christ takes place in the heavenlies. This is an evaluation judgment for believers. This is not for unbelievers. It is not to determine who will go into heaven and who will not. The very fact that you are there means that you will enter into heaven, that you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what takes place at the judgment seat of Christ is an evaluation of what you have done as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ with all of the spiritual and physical assets that God has given you during your life on earth. You will be evaluated in terms of how you have have utilized those and then God will either reward you for your faithfulness or you will lose rewards and lose position in the kingdom. Now this is what we have been studying up to this particular point. And last time we concluded with a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 through 15, where we looked at the fact that in the Christian life, you're going to produce a vast array of works. Gold, silver, and precious stones is one category. And the other category is wood, hay, and straw. Now, wood, hay, and straw is what we classify as human good. That's morality. Every unbeliever can live a perfect, or can live a moral life. Only a believer under the filling of the Holy Spirit can produce gold, silver, and precious stones. And at the judgment seat of Christ, God is going to distinguish between morality that is done in the power of the flesh. Remember, whatever an unbeliever can do, apart from God's help, is not part of the spiritual life. So a moral life is not equivalent to a spiritual life. This is one of the greatest points that is overlooked by many theologians. They want to immediately... I'm amazed at how superficial and how naive many Christian thinkers are. They just assume that Christians are going to be wonderful moral people and unbelievers are just hideous, wicked people and yet most of us know unbelievers that have a certain degree of integrity now we live in a society that does not do much to promote personal integrity and the lack of integrity is one of the major problems we face so you may not know too many unbelievers who have a great deal of integrity yet if you look back in history you would discover that there have been many times in human history that there have been uh, believers or unbelievers excuse me unbelievers who were or who did demonstrate a great deal of morality and a great deal of integrity. So morality is not the same as spirituality. They are vastly different. The Pharisees at the time of Christ were incredibly moral people. They believed in obeying the Mosaic law, and they went to great pains to try to decide how every ordinance, every statute in the Mosaic law ought to be applied, and they had developed very rigid Very detailed traditions on just how each and every Mosaic law ordinance should be applied and should be uh, utilized. And yet, Jesus accused them of being nothing more than whitewashed tombstones. They looked good on the outside, but on the inside it was dead men's bones. So morality is nothing. Any unbeliever can produce morality. So whatever an unbeliever can do is not part of the spiritual life. So it's only by walking by means of God the Holy Spirit that the believer is enabled to produce works that are evaluated positively at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we don't know what they are. You can't look at your life and I can't look at my life and necessarily determine what is the production of the Holy Spirit and what is not. To some degree, we, over a period of time, and it takes time to grow and mature in the spiritual life. It doesn't happen overnight. I've always been amazed at how... Quickly, some churches want to move people from uh, walking in the front door as a guest into teaching Sunday school, putting them in the charge of some committee and getting them involved. And And the reason is, is there's this confusion between production in terms of Christian service and spiritual maturity. And uh, spiritual service should be the result of maturity, it is not the means to maturity. And this is another error I see that is very common, is that people mature in the spiritual life by getting involved in the local church and doing Christian service. Nowhere in the scripture does it say that we are matured by evangelism, that we are matured by giving, that we are matured by teaching, That may be that we, in in the process of our spiritual life, as we grow and mature, these are to be the results. They relate to either our ministry as ambassadors for Christ, or or they relate to our ministry in terms of our universal royal priesthood, but they are to be the consequence of spiritual growth, not the cause of spiritual growth. And so often we tend to put the cart before the horse, And we don't take the time to let people just sit in the pew for a year, two, three, four years, soak up the Word of God, let the Holy Spirit work in their lives, bring them to maturity, and then as a result of that maturity, begin to uh, exercise their spiritual gifts in terms of service. We get impatient. And I would rather have a lot of things not done around a church and wait until people grow to a level of maturity, respond to the grace of God, and then have it come in in the proper course and proper time then have it imposed from the outside. That's legalism. That's just a very subtle form of, of legalism. So we saw last time that there's the distinction in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 between the work that is gold, silver, and precious stones, and that which is wood, hay, and straw, and everything that we do is going to be somehow piled up like a house and set on fire. And that which survives is the gold, silver, and precious stones. The wood, hay, and straw is all burned up, and we are rewarded for what's left over. So the focus is not on what burns up. You are not going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and have, the, have God the Son pull out a scroll listing all of your sins and all of your failures and read them out or show a movie, a scope movie, so that everybody can see all of your failures and all of your sins so that you can be embarrassed over that. You will hear that said sometimes in order to scare unbelievers into the kingdom of heaven. That is not what the scripture says at all. That, again, violates the law of double jeopardy. Your sins have been paid for. They are not ever again going to be an issue. The issue is your obedience. For salvation, the issue is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. For the spiritual life, the issue is faithfulness in learning the Word of God under the filling of God the Holy Spirit and applying it in your life, growing to maturity and being faithful to do what God has said to do in fulfilling the mandates for the spiritual life. At the judgment seat of Christ in the midst of this conflagration, all the wood, hay, and straw is burned up and you're rewarded for what's left over. And that is going to be the basis for rewards, And for inheritance. Now we saw in our study uh, in Luke 19 of the parable of the minas. That this inheritance is spoken of in terms of ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is part of what it means to inherit the kingdom of God. It means that we will rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this brings us to a very important passage that is uh, several of you have asked about in the course of this study so we need to take the time to look at and that is found in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 11 through 13. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 11 through 13. It is a trustworthy statement. I'm going to read the verses and then we'll come back and look at the context and exegete the passage so that we can understand just exactly what it is the Apostle is saying. is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. I remember the first time I was teaching a class at Houston Bible Institute about 18 years ago, and I was teaching a course on the pastoral epistles, and I came to this passage, and I did what most young teachers do, and that is moved right past it. It's a difficult passage to understand, and of course I did have one sharp student who challenged me in class, so I had to go home and really do my homework on it. But it's a very important passage to understand, and it fits our topic. Now let's go back and pick up the context. One of the most important things to do in looking at any Scripture to properly understand it is understand how it fits within the flow of the author's reasoning. What is Paul telling young Timothy to do? For Timothy is a pastor. So that's its primary interpretation is that Timothy? uh, Paul is encouraging Timothy to hang in there through the tough times as a pastor, as a pastor-teacher. He says, starting in verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. If you're going to be a pastor-teacher, you have to understand something about grace orientation. If you don't, you will never make it. Sheep are hard to deal with. You'll get impatient. You'll get frustrated. They'll grow slow. They won't do what you want them to do. And you better be grace-oriented and give them time to grow. Verse 2, and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these things, that is the doctrine that he's been teaching, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So here he's relating it specifically that part of the responsibility of a pastor is to make sure he's communicating doctrine to specific men who in turn will be able to communicate that to other men. This is a training procedure for developing Pastor teachers within a congregation, and it is done not necessarily through discipleship, small group kind of methodology. What Jesus did with his disciples, nobody else did. Paul didn't. Paul had an entourage that traveled with him of young pastors that he utilized. They were like assistant pastors in a way. Uh, Timothy, Titus, Epaphroditus, some others, but they but they were never called Paul's disciples. They were never called. Uh, the term "mathetes" is never used of Paul's relationship to those men. So the, the the background here is not that of a pastor getting together with a small group of men and doing this, what is commonly referred to as discipleship today, which is a popular technique and I think is grossly uh, misunderstood. But it's the idea of the pastor teaching within his local congregation. That's what you see in Acts. That's the methodology you see throughout the epistles as a pastor teaching a congregation. And within that congregation, there are going to be men who have the gift of pastor-teacher. And it is the responsibility of the pastor to teach in such a way that those men as well are being matured so that they can go and do likewise. You know, we have, I was talking with Jim the other day about our tape ministry. And the tape ministry has expanded now to where, during any given week, there are more people, or just about more people, it's almost equal, but I think it's a little heavier on the tape side. There are more t- people listening to doctrine around the world on tapes from this church than there are who show up at this church. And I imagine that most people who are out there don't realize that we're just a small country church. You get on, Bryce and I were talking about this, how you get on the internet and you see various. Um, Things there, stores, all kinds of places where you can purchase things, and you don't know what that place is like at all. It may be some business that some guy's running out of his garage, or it may be some major warehouse somewhere, but you have no idea what that business is really like. You just know that they have the product that that is what you want. And the same thing is true here. We have people out there, I'm sure, who think that this is some major church 500 or 1,000 people up here in Connecticut. Because when most people think of Connecticut, they think about the other side of the state. (coughs) They don't think about this side of the state. So they don't realize that this is a church set out amongst the cornfields. Although I had one guy call me up he said, I've heard a couple of things you've said about the church, and I'm trying to picture it out in the cornfields. And I guess my wife and I are just going to have to come up and visit sometime soon so we can see what the congregation looks like and figure out who it is that we always hear laughing on the tapes. (laughs) But we have uh, two or three men out there who are listening to tapes, who are either going to seminary or who are on the verge of going to seminary, plus a couple of pastors. So that's part of the training ministry that we're developing in this church as well as the fact that there are some men here who think they have the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. So one of the challenging things about a pastor is that hes it's like a one-room schoolhouse. Some of you are in spirit, spiritual spiritual pre-kindergarten. Others of you are pushing spiritual graduate school. And I have to teach to that entire breadth of spiritual growth. So some of you are going to hear some things and you're just going to have to say, okay, I'll worry about that later. I'm just going to take out of this message what I can understand and apply now. Others of you sit back there and say, you know, I've heard this and I've heard this and I've heard this and the temptation is to go to sleep and miss the fact that right in the middle of four points that you've heard before, the fifth point is going to be something totally new that you have to have in order to make that next move towards spiritual maturity. So Paul is addressing Timothy in relation to the pastoral ministry. And the basic command is to continue to be strong in grace. Now as he develops that, he gives th- several illustrations, three illustrations starting in verse 3. First is to suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That's why you have to be grace-oriented as a pastor because you have to be relying on the grace of God when you go through various trials and testing in order to make it through because it's, it's not as simple as some people think it is. You know, some people get the idea that because I'm up here and I'm teaching the Word and I know all these principles, that I apply them just as easily as can be. You know, that just shows you've never spent any time with a pastor. <laughs> you know, pastors are growing as well. And the Lord is always teaching me various things in the midst of, of, as I teach them to you. And it's just as much a challenge for me as it is to you. And the Lord does not move past me in the realm of testing in order to give me opportunities to apply the Word. So we have to suffer hardship, Paul says. We have to endure as a good soldier. So the first image is of a soldier who is out there in the fields, who is going through difficult times. He could be back at home. Those of you who have members of the family in the military, you've been in the military, you know that there are many things in civilian life that you give up while you're in military service. And that's the point here is that when you're a pastor, there are certain things that just aren't going to be part of your life or you're going to suffer hardship, it's going to be difficult. And the analogy is to that of a soldier. Verse 4, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So in, in the analogy of a soldier, you're not to be too entangled in in things that distract you from the ministry of teaching the Word of God. Verse 5 uses an illustration of an athlete. If anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. So first of all, we learn, and by interpretation, this applies to to Timothy as a pastor, but by application, this applies to every believer. You have to suffer hardship in the spiritual life. That's part of moving forward. There are things as a believer you're not going to be able to do that other believers who don't care about their spiritual life do and that unbelievers do because you know it will distract you from the goal of spiritual growth. Secondly, we see that there are rules involved in the spiritual life. One of the greatest dangers is antinomianism, taking grace for granted, the idea that because Christ died on the cross for my sins, He paid for all my sins, so now I can just do whatever I want to, and it's not going to make a difference. It will make a difference. Paul says, if you don't run like an athlete... And follow the rules, you will be disqualified. In 1 Corinthians, I think it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, I buffet my body daily in order to make sure that when I run the race, I'm not disqualified. So even Paul realized the possibility of sin and failure in his life that would disqualify him from the rewards. So he encourages Timothy to run according to the rules. And then the third illustration is of a farmer. And this reads, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. So this brings in the idea of reward for the effort put forth. So we see three different ideas here. Endurance of hard times, of difficult times. The second idea is following the rules. And the third idea is that if you do all of that, you will receive a reward For the effort that you have put forth. Now, notice the idea here. It's not grace. This isn't a gift. This is a reward. This is doing, this emphasizes the concept of merit. So we're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about something beyond salvation. Salvation is not based on our merit. It's based on Christ's merit. He did all the work. What we see here is something that goes beyond salvation and relates to how we live the spiritual life. In verse 7 through 10, Paul is simply encouraging Timothy to pay attention to what he has said and relating his own personal example. And then in verse 10 he says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that is for the believers, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Now, here he is using the word salvation, which in the Greek looks like this, soter. Now, this is an important word, s-o-t-e-r, i-a, soteria, which relates to salvation. Now, in fact, one of the uh, young men that gets tapes regularly... Emails me regularly. He's taking some seminary courses. And he was telling me recently how in his soteriology class, the professor, who I know taught me some good things at one time, the professor challenged him, gave him an assignment to go home and go through the concordance and look at every single verse where the word sozo for salvation, that's the verb, soteria is the, the noun, soteria means savior, that to go through every single Verse where those words are used and then classify the meanings. And he did that so that they would come back realizing that in half the, t- half the times that the word is used in the New Testament, it has nothing to do with entering into heaven. That always surprises people. It, in, in, many cont- in some contexts, it even means healing. But it means simply deliverance. So you always have to look at the context to determine what kind of deliverance are we talking about. And here we're not talking about deliverance in terms of phase one, salvation, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But we've seen that salvation, sozo, soteria, all of these words refer to three different phases of God's plan. Phase one is what what is called justification, more precisely. And that has to do with entrance into God's plan at the moment you have faith alone in Christ alone. Phase two is the spiritual life, and phase three is the culmination of the spiritual life, glorification, when you're absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. That's what Paul means here in verse 10. For this reason I endure, for the sake of those who are chosen, and he's using the word elect here as a synonym for those who are saved that they also may obtain the salvation. Now, there he's not talking about phase one, because they're already phase one. That they may obtain the salvation here, phase three. So, he's, talking, he's using this to encompass the entire framework of God's plan for their life. And then he's going to summarize this in verses 11 through 13, through the use of what appears to be a hymn that was commonly sung in the church at that time. And because this hymn accurately reflects the the truth and doctrine, the Holy Spirit, or the Apostle Paul, under the principle of inspiration by means of the Holy Spirit, includes this much of the hymn in Scripture in order to make the point. Now, there are four conditional clauses listed here. From verses 11 to 13, we have four conditional clauses and we have to evaluate those in terms of their their meaning. And in order for us to understand the difficult clause, which is the second half of verse 12, if we deny him, he also will deny us. What does that mean? Then we have to come back and look at I want to look at 11 first and then 13 and then we'll look at 12. Now, remember what we've said so far. We went, first of all, to the parable of the minas in Luke 19. There were three servants involved. The nobleman went off to a far land. Before he left, he went off to the far land to receive his kingdom. Before he left, he called his servants. He gave each of the ten servants a mina. And then we're told what happens with three of them. The first one is faithful and the one mina is turned into ten. The second one is faithful, he doesn't receive verbal praise, but he does receive rulership in the kingdom. He turns his one mina into five. And the last one, because he's afraid of the accountability procedure, he just hides the mina. he doesn't do anything with him with it, and that's comparable to the believer who does nothing with the assets that God gives him, and so he is chastised, he is rebuked, and his mind is taken away. That's not loss of salvation. His mind is taken away and given to the others. The citizens, the third group of people in that parable, which represent the unbelievers, they are all put to death. The servants are not. Even the unfaithful servant is not put to death. But he is denied possession of what was given him. There is a denial of reward. What happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the judgment seat of Christ? Those who have gold, silver, and precious stones are given rewards. Those who have nothing are saved, yet as through fire. But it says in the text, they suffer loss. They are denied rewards. So what happens in this passage? Let's look at verse 11. It is a trustworthy statement. That means that this is a doctrinally true statement, and it's derived from what many suppose was a popular song of that day, a popular hymn of that day. For if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. And it begins with a first-class condition. Now, a first-class condition in the Greek, for those of you who haven't been here, there are four different ways to express a conditional clause in the Greek language. A conditional clause is an if clause. Now, in English, we have only one way to express a conditional clause. We say, if you do this, then I'll do that. But in Greek, there are four different ways to express four different shades of meaning. The first class condition says if, and we assume it to be true that this is the case. The second class assumes it to be false, that the condition is false, if, and we assume this won't be the case. The third class is what we normally think of in a hypothetical statement. Uncertainty, we're not sure whether it's true or not true. And the fourth class condition is if I wish it were true, but it's not. Now, this is a first class condition. If we died with Him and we have. That's how it should be understood. If we died with Him and we have, we shall also live with Him. Now the main verb here in the Greek is soon apo thanesco which is a complex compound word I guess you have the prefix soon prefix apo and then the main verb thanesco thanesco means to die and when you Add it with soon, soon and apothenesco, it has to do with a joint death or co-death. So it is accurately translated, if we died with him, him being the Lord Jesus Christ. For if we have died, and truly the phrase with him is not in the original. That should be in italics. There is no, um, it's just implied by the soon there. If we co-died and the implication is with Jesus Christ, then we shall also live with him. Now this is in the future tense, which indicates a future life. Dying is uh, in the past. It's an aorist active indicative. So if we died with him in the past, this is at the point of salvation, we shall live with him. This is future phase three, glorification. Now what is he talking about dying with Christ? Well at the moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, something instantaneously takes place which is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now the term baptism, as we've studied, refers to identification. That's its significance. Every time you see the word baptism, do not think about water baptism. That's not the thrust. Baptism has to do with identification. Even water baptism is merely a symbol or representation of our identification with Christ at the moment of our salvation. At the moment of salvation, we are identified with Christ and we are united with Christ positionally in His death, burial, and resurrection according to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. If we died with Him, we will live with Him. Hold your place and let's look back at Romans chapter 6 just briefly to remind you of the doctrine of positional truth. Romans 6.1 What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? See, that, was how, that is how the antinomians respond. The antinomians say that because of grace, there are no longer any mandates in the Scripture that you as a believer should follow sad thing is, there are some people who have come out of some of uh, our related churches, some people you know of who are now teaching this heretical doctrine. We are still to abide by the mandates. I keep wanting to ask these guys, what do you do with all the imperatives in Scripture? Because what they're saying is, if you say you have to obey any imperative in Scripture, you're just a legalist. Well, Paul must have then been a legalist in that sense. Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? See, that's the point. It's positional death. When we're identified with Christ, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we are identified with Him, and we die to the sin nature positionally. Not in reality, but positionally. We still possess a sin nature. But it is no longer the, indisputed, the undisputed master of our soul. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, notice that, identified with Christ, have been identified with His death. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the gl- "...to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life." In other words, the identification with Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection takes place at the moment of salvation, and it breaks the power of the sin nature. We are no longer uh, enslaved to the sin nature. That's how Paul develops his argument in the rest of the chapter. He says, because you're no longer a bond slave to sin, make yourselves or live as slaves to righteousness." Now let's go back to Second Timothy chapter 2. The point in this first stanza is, if we died with Him positionally, that happens at the moment of salvation. So if we died with Him and you have, that means you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Once positional truth takes place, once you die, you can't repeat it, you can't lose it. It's yours forever. People who teach that you can lose your salvation do not understand the complexities of what God does. If you lose salvation, then this, plus the other 38 irrevocable things that happen to you at the moment of salvation, have to be reversed. And that can't happen. It's impossible. If we died with Him, and we have, we shall also live with Him. This is a promise. If you died with him, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ at that instant you are identified with him through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you are united with Christ in an eternal relationship, and you can never lose it. Romans eight twenty eight Romans eight thirty eight and thirty nine. That cannot be lost. That is stanza number one. Stanza number two, the first half of verse twelve. If we endure if we endure We shall also reign with him. And there again, it is a first class condition because Paul is assuming that you will endure. Doesn't mean that they will, but it is assuming that he's being optimistic. If we endure, we shall reign with him. So there we see again a reminder of the same idea that we have in, that we saw mentioned in the parable of the Minas as that the believer who is obedient and faithful has a position ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ. If we endure comes from the uh, present active indicative of hupomeno. H-U-P-O-M-E-N-O. Now, it's a present active. In the first verse, you had an heiress Tense verb, which is past action. If we die in the past, at the moment you trusted Christ as your Savior, we shall also live. Future tense, phase three. Now it's if we endure. Present tense, continuous action in present time, emphasizing the importance of endurance in the spiritual life, phase two, the plan of salvation. If we endure, Now, what is it that James teaches in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4? Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Hupomeno. So what we have here is, or there uses the noun hupomenes, but here we have, or hupomenae, what we have here is that endurance is the key to going through the tests. We're going through tests of hardship, just as Paul says, to, to Timothy, you have to suffer hardship, you have to endure the hard times by utilizing uh, doctrine and the stress busters, the problem-solving devices that God gives us to endure the adversity, and the result of that is maturity. So the focus here is if we endure, and endurance is going to lead you to spiritual maturity, capacity for blessing in time and eternity, if we endure, we shall also reign with Him. Phase two is a training ground for your position as a ruler in the millennial kingdom. If we do not pass the tests during this time, there is no ruling and reigning. There is no responsibility in phase three because there is no capacity, there is no ability to do that. You learn how to do it in phase two during this lifetime. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Now, let's skip the next clause for just a moment and go to verse 13. Remember, the reason I'm skipping this is the key interpretive principle. The 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 unclear or vague is always interpreted by the clear. So when you run into certain passages where you're a little fuzzy just exactly what does this mean, you always interpret that by means of the clear statements of Scripture. Now, verse thirteen is very clear. If we are faithless, if we are faithless, and here again he uses a first-class condition in order to assume the reality of the uh, of the uh, 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 Protestants here. If we are faithless, and some will be, if we are faithless, that means to be disobedient, to not trust the Lord, to not grow to spiritual maturity, to treat God's grace in a light manner. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He remains faithful. So while we might be unfaithful, we might be disobedient, live a carnal life like the Corinthians, we might even get to the point where we deny Christ as our Savior even. If we are faithless, He remains faithful because that is His character. He is immutable. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. He's not going to go back on His Word. He made a promise that if you put your faith and trust in Him, you will have eternal life and you will spend eternity in heaven. He is not going to go back on that promise. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. Why? Because... Literally because, it is in the Greek, the particle gar, G-A-R, which has a primary meaning of, of cause or because, because he cannot deny himself. He is immutable. He cannot change. He cannot go back on his word. You cannot lose that salvation that is given to you. Once it is given to you, nothing can take it away. The Apostle Paul said, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ Jesus, and that is our position at the moment of salvation. So now that we have understood that, let's go back and pick up that last clause in verse 12. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. Now... Some people would say, well, doesn't that contradict verse 13? Well, let's understand what is meant by denial. If we deny Him, we trust Christ as our Savior, then we come under persecution and where our life is threatened, so we decide, well, I don't want to go through all this difficulty, I don't want to suffer hardship with Christ anymore, I would rather live, I'm going to just say I'm not a believer. Or recant the faith. This happened many times in the Roman Empire when there were various persecutions. It happened at other times throughout history. For example, one of the most famous is when Archbishop, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, was uh, thrown in prison. He was one of the writers of this, I think it was the 66 Articles of Faith under, under, we see, Henry VIII had a son, uh, Edward, who was a Protestant for a couple of years. He reigned, and then after he died, he was a sickly boy. After he died, his sister, Mary, Mary Tudor, became Queen of England for a few years, and she had been raised a Roman Catholic. The, uh, Edward had been raised a Protestant, and under his rule, he had Thomas Cramer as Archbishop of Canterbury, and they instituted the Reformation in England in a greater way than they ever had before, and the truth of the gospel was clearly taught and proclaimed from the pulpits of the Anglican church. But when Mary came to the throne in her vindictiveness, she threw all the Protestants into prison. And under pain of torture and death, uh, the death of his family, Cranmer recanted his faith. He denied Christ as his Savior, and he signed a recantation that's denying Christ. Well, because it took him a while and they had to put him on the rack for a number of days and they had to do a number of horrible things to him before he would recant, uh, it took him too long that the Roman Catholic authorities under Bloody Mary, that's what she, why she was called Bloody Mary, is because she, she killed, executed so many Protestants, uh, burned over 300 at the stake during her short reign. Uh, she decided that she would not release Cranmer. So Cranmer recanted his recantation. So, first he's denying, then he's denying his denial. And when Cranmer went to the stake, he sang, as the flames were licking at his body, he sang hymns to God and he held out his hand. He said, this hand signed a denial of my Savior. And he held his hand in the flames until it burnt off while he sang hymns to the glory of God. Those were men and women who took the grace of God and the truth of the gospel seriously. Denial here speaks of the act of rejecting Christ as Savior after you have accepted Him as Savior. And what that says is He will deny us. Deny us what? Deny us. Rewards, Not deny us salvation because as we have already seen in verse 13, if we are faithless, He remains faithful. So if we reject our faith and deny Him, He remains faithful and we don't lose our salvation. But He will deny rewards as we have seen in 1 Corinthians 3 and in Luke 19 in the rewards passages. And what is the result? Now let's turn to First John chapter two, verse twenty-eight. 1 John chapter two, verse twenty-eight. The Apostle John writes, and now little children abide in Him. Abide in Him is Johannine—that's the scholarly term for the writings of John. That is Johannine terminology for hypomeno. Endurance, abide, abide, hang in there, stay in there, stay in fellowship, walk by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we don't know when it will be, it could be at any moment, when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. You see, there will be many believers who have denied the Lord, many believers who have been faithless, many believers who have been given this incredible array of spiritual assets to live the spiritual life. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the completed canon of Scripture. We are royal priests to God. We are in the royal family of God. We have immediate access to God the Father. We can come boldly before the throne of grace. In time of need. We have a, a vast array of promises in the Scripture. Scripture says that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Except when we reject that, when we ignore it, when we put our attention on the day-to-day affairs of life rather than on our eternity, rather than realizing that we must live today in light of eternity, that the decisions we make today determine what, where we are and what we do in eternity in the kingdom of God... When we reject that, then we will be ashamed when Jesus Christ returns. And there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Because rather than hearing the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant, we will hear either nothing or we will hear the Lord ask why we did what we did or failed to use what we were given as He did with the unfaithful servant. So this is the doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ and inheritance. And we realize that there will be rewards for those who are faithful. And there will be a loss of rewards for those who are unfaithful. There will be praise for those who are faithful. There will be shame for those who are unfaithful. There were, those who are faithful will rule and reign. And those who are unfaithful will will still live in the kingdom, but they will not possess the kingdom. Now, I don't have time to go on into that next subject this morning, so we will come back next time and look at the difference between living in the kingdom and inheriting or possessing the kingdom with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity we've had to look at Your Word this morning to be challenged by the fact that there will be a day of accountability for us in terms of our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. And we pray that we might be found faithful, and that we will hear our Lord say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Father, we pray, too, that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their eternal destiny, that is uncertain of their salvation, that they would take the opportunity right now to make that issue clear. That salvation is by no other name under heaven than Jesus Christ. Scripture makes it clear, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Salvation is not by works, it's not by church membership, it's not by morality, it's not by some kind of personal reformation of life. It is not simply by having uh, some sort of experience with God. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Because Jesus Christ paid the eternal penalty for our sins, we can have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us remember the things we have studied today and challenge us with them. In Jesus' name, amen.